Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 252 or 252. My name is John O'Logan, and not only should I be welcoming you to Random Encounter, but I should also be welcoming you to Random Book Club. Uh, this is a semi-regular segment that we've been doing on the show where Hillary and I... Say hi, Hillary. Hello, everyone. Uh, we team up and we talk about uh, books, about RPGs or adventure game or other video game related topics. Uh, the last episode we did this on was Random 247, where we talked about bitmap books, the art of point-and-click adventure games, which was uh, an exploration of, uh, well, the art of point-and-click adventure games. It was it was <laughs> interviews with, like, some of the creators and things that uh, went into the creation of the genre. Uh, today we have a book that is more firmly focused on the, uh, the RPG part of RPG Fan, uh, and this is a book focused on JRPGs called Fight Magic Items. The History of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and the Rise of Japanese RPGs in the West, being published by Running Press. It is written by Aiden Moher, who just happens to be with us today. Hi, Aiden. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about this book with uh, with other people and to talk about Japanese RPGs with other adults. Uh, it doesn't yeah. happen as much as it did when I was a teenager and a kid, so I uh, I really appreciate this opportunity. I know what you mean. It's like... It's, I'd say it's like 75% of the reason that I do Random Encounter is just so I get to talk about RPGs with people, uh, which you don't get the opportunity the same way you did when you were a kid. So uh, we really appreciate you coming on here and uh, sharing some of your thoughts about uh, this book. Uh, so yeah, the book is exactly what it says on the tin. It's a history of JRPGs in the West, starting with the two originators of the genre, Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest. Uh, the TLDR from the book's page on Running Press is... Take a journey through the history of Japanese role-playing games from the creators who built it, the games that defined it, and the stories that transformed pop culture and continue to capture the imaginations of millions of fans to this day. Uh, and now, while this is a, well, it's a history book about uh, RPGs, it's coming at that history from a very personal angle because it, uh, it really starts with your own experience with RPGs. So uh, can you tell me, how did everything begin for you with this genre of video game? Yeah, so like... Japanese RPGs are, are a genre that, for me, have always connected me to other people. They're single-player games, but they've always involved other people. And I go all the way back to, like, being a kid. I was probably, like, eight or nine. Uh, I had a Game Boy. And prior to that, you know, I had never had a, a game console. I had been a predominantly, like, a PC gamer. Um, my dad was always a an early adopter of technology. So I was into stuff like, you know, Doom, uh, Commander Keen, stuff like that. Um, but I had a Game Boy and one time I was with a friend and we were visiting his cousin who also had a Game Boy. So I was like, I thought that was pretty cool. We were going to be, you know, we were going to be good butts. Um, I was playing Ninja Turtles, follow the Foot Clan. I was, you know, slashing ninjas, uh, uh, knocking them with my, my, uh, nunchucks. I owned that game. Yeah. And, um, my friend's cousin said, Hey, like, you want to see this game that I'm playing? I said, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So he handed me his Game Boy, and uh, it wasn't Ninja Turtles. It wasn't a side-scroller. It wasn't an action game. It was this sort of weird, slow, plotting game that was almost like a, a board game. I was moving, like, square by square through this, like, fantasy world map. Uh, and then all of a sudden, the map, like, you know, exploded into geometric shapes, and there was this big, scary tiger, and it wasn't moving. Um, and I had to, like, select actions off a menu... I, I said, yeah, no, that, that, no, thanks. This gave him his Game Boy back. N not for me. Um, that game was Final Fantasy Legend 2, which is also known as, you know, one of the saga games from uh, <laughs> Akitoshi Kawazu, who uh, 
you know, I, I respect and really admire and love what Kawazu brings to Japanese RPGs. I don't like his games very much. Um, <laughs> oh, sir, they, you've made a friend today. Yes, yeah, that's true. Okay, good. I'm in the right place. Um, yeah, I, I don't. I mean, God knows if I if my first fan, if my very first RPG was a saga game, I would have bounced off it just as hard as you did. Yeah, yeah. And this is a hot debate among RPG fan staff too. But I okay, think most of yeah. us have come to a point sort of like you <laughs> where we we respect. That's the thing. Like, you know, Kawazu <laughs> pushes boundaries. He explores design space. He's like never content to settle on something familiar, which is probably the very worst first experience an eight-year-old could have with Japanese <laughs> RPGs. So I thought for a number of years, uh, I thought I hated Japanese RPGs. Um in those years, I started getting into epic fantasy novels. So I was, you know, The, the Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings and then Terry Brooks's uh, Shannara series. And then one night, um, my parents were were out and my babysitter came over and he was this like, you know, cool 16-year-old uh, babysitter. We really got along. We always played video games all night, especially after my brothers went to bed. They're younger than me. Usually we would play Doom and Wolfenstein, the stuff that I, I talked about earlier. But this night he brought over a game for my brand new super nes and that game was final fantasy 3 and so that was the night it all changed like so i was sitting here and like you know i i admired him and that was probably part of it right um mm. i wanted to like what he liked but more than that you know i had this sort of like visceral experience this like really emotional experience as i was watching him play the game and playing it with him and like you know we're we're exploring the minds of narsh which is the sort of opening city in, in Final Fantasy 3 or Final Fantasy 6. It's really like dark and grimy and you're trying to escape the, the empire. Um, you're, you, you get into combat and then all of a sudden we step onto the game's first save spot in the mines. And there's this like ping, this like really warm, kind, welcoming ping. And a, like the screen flashes this bluey white and it's like a big hug. And for like, you know, three seconds, I felt safe. And I was like, this is like, what, like, what are these feelings? This is not like immediate danger. This is not like, you know, reflexive action in the game. Like, like I was used to with side scrollers, this, but this makes me feel like I'm re like I'm playing or I'm part of, I'm an active participant in one of the fantasy novels that I'm obsessed with as well. Um, and that was it like that from that night forward, um, Final Fantasy three became like the game for me and my friends. And, and somehow my, one of my other friends then got his own copy. And I remember watching him play through it at his house. And then the cart traded hands and we all played it one at a time. And, uh, you know, I never owned my own copy until of the super Nintendo version until, uh, maybe two years ago when I got, my wife got me one for Christmas. Uh, uh -huh. so in the meantime, you know, like I, I loved this game, but at, at a point I had to pass it along to a friend, right? Mm. And so in that time, I'm scouring magazines. And I'm like, okay, like who made Final Fantasy? What are they making next? Um, and of course, the next thing from Hironobu Sakaguchi, but also Yuji Horii, who created Final Fantasy's rival series, Dragon Quest, was Chrono Trigger. Um, and so I, you know, obsessed over those magazines. I still have the game players like, you know, two feet away from me right now with like the <laughs> review of it. It's like, you know, so well-worn because I read it so much. Mm -hmm. And I, so I, I just obsessed over Chrono Trigger. I finally got it for my birthday a few months after release. And that was just like, that was it. Like my enthusiasm and excitement for Japanese RPGs with Final Fantasy three just became an obsession after Chrono Trigger. Um, and then that kind of took over my friend group at that point. And we all 
like I said, like these games have always been social for me. So I grew up in a small community and, and I had to catch a ferry to school and high school. So it was a 20 minute ferry ride and then a bus ride after that. So I had a lot of time to just like sit and hang out with my friends, right? Uh, Nothing to do. This was well before cell phones, uh, like smartphones and um, TikTok and Twitter and all of that, right? So we would just sit and hang out. And so we were talking about all of these games that we loved. And that became like a really kind of personal social time in my life to the point where like, you know, I would bring my I have a Commodore 1702 computer monitor that I grew up playing these games on. I would hook up a VCR with my game consoles plugged in and I would haul that monitor over to my friend's house and we would sit with our TVs back to back playing Lunar, Silver Star Story Complete. And so like, you know, these games are like, they're single player games and air quotes, but they were always social. They were always something that I connected to people over. And so, you know, fast forward a a many number of years, 15 years, and, and my first kid was had been born she was a couple of years old at that point and i had been keeping up with modern games i was still playing a fair number of games but i wasn't playing a lot of retro games and at some point for some reason i said hey i wonder if i can still like really enjoy those games that i used to love you know like they are very metaphorical they're symbolic right they require like a connection between the player and the game and so the the way I think of it is like the game happens as much in your head as it does on the screen. The same as reading a book, right? Your, your mind and your, you, you know, your experiences are forming how it, it plays out in your head. And so I was like, do I, you know, do I still have that? Do I have those imaginative juices? Uh, I had a, you know, a baby, my brain wasn't really working that well. So I decided <laughs> to test that theory and I, I loaded up an emulator and I, I picked out two super Nintendo games that I knew I wanted to play. I'd always wanted to play but never had for a variety of reasons. And those games were Lufia 2 and Terranigma. Um, they're both kind of considered classics, but I picked them because I didn't have like specific nostalgia for them. I had nostalgia for that type of game, that period of time in gaming, but not for those games in particular. So they, you know, it was a test. They'd be new. They'd be new, right? They're new experiences. It's like discovering a brand new Super Nintendo RPG. Um and I loved it. Like, I was totally enamored with them. In the case um, of Terranigma, literally in the case, because it was never released here. Yes, a- I, absolutely. I was about to ask, yeah. is it the same case in Canada as that is in the States? So yeah. I guess yeah, it we, is. Yeah, we never yeah. got it. Yeah. Uh, we, we got Illusion of Gaia, we got Soul Blazer, but we did not get Terranigma. No. And I like, but I also, as a teen, like, I knew about Terranigma, right? Like, I saw it oh, in yeah. the back of Game Fan, and I like, you know, I needed it so bad. And now I was able to play it, right? And so I did play it. And I loved it. And I loved Lufia too. And I was like, okay, these like, these games aren't just like compelling to me as an adult, but they like, they have new qualities that I couldn't appreciate when I was younger. And so I started thinking, I was like, well, you know, these games, like they've influenced me in the same ways or, you know, as much as any of the epic fantasy novels that I read. And, you know, uh, in addition to being a nonfiction writer, I'm a fiction writer. And so I started thinking about my stories and I'm like, these have like a ton of like the stories that I've written, short stories and novels that I've worked on, like they have as much of Final Fantasy in them as they do, you know, epic fantasy novel influences. And I, I thought to myself, you know, if that's the case for me, it's it's got to be true for other people, right? There's got to be other mm-hmm. people who who played these games as teenagers and, and that inspires their... um they're writing now. And so my first professional piece of games writing was for Kotaku. And it was a piece, um, a big long piece exploring how there's a modern generation of science fiction and fantasy writers who were shaped and influenced as much by Hironobu Sakaguchi as they were 
you know, J.R.R. Tolkien or Ursula Le Guin. Um, and that article really hit a nerve with a lot of readers. I got a ton of feedback from people being like, oh, like, you know, oh gosh, like, thanks for writing this. I've always felt that my writing wanted to incorporate stuff from Final Fantasy or, or whatever, Japanese RPGs, you know, <laughs> they inspire me so much, but I didn't know if that was an okay thing. I didn't know if that was, you could do that. And so finding that connection to like people, the people who make the games, the people who play the games and how they impact us as like, you know, individuals and as, as, as communities is something that I really wanted to write about. And so I started pitching more articles. I wrote about uh, Lunar Silver Star Story Complete for EGM. I wrote, um, you know, other pieces here and there. And I always tried to find those human stories because those are universal. Mm. Um, but in the case of Fight Magic Items, you know, I was able to then draw my own experiences in because I grew up alongside this genre, right? I was a kid when mm -hmm. the, the the genre was sort of in its childhood and I was a teenager when it was sort of in its adolescence. And, you know, I had been writing a lot of these articles and and my agent, Eric Smith, is a big JRPG fan. And he actually was the one that, that reached out and said, hey, Aiden, I think you have a book here. Um, and he specifically said, I think you have a, like, I think you have a really interesting approach to this in the way that you bring sort of nostalgia and personal emotion into your writings about these games. I think this is a book. And yeah. so we connected and uh, he became my agent. We worked on this pitch that was from the very beginning, like the very first, like the book now is called Fight Magic Items, uh, History of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest, and the Rise of Japanese RPGs in the West. The very first like tagline for the book was, it was Fight Magic Items, A Personal History of Japanese RPGs. So that idea of bringing that personal story in there was baked into the book from the very beginning, not because I wanted to talk about myself, but because I knew if I shared those experiences, I'd find those same memories and those same feelings, that same nostalgia in other readers, because my experiences aren't unique. These games have brought so many people together and inspired so many people. Yeah. It's funny that you say that because that's exactly how I felt. I was, by writing this book through the lens of your own experiences, you're causing the reader to reflect on their own. Like, uh, I at many points in this book when I was reading, I I was relating pretty hard because I was a Canadian kid. Uh, I didn't I, I I had an NES, but I never played any RPGs on it. In fact, I bounced off Dragon Quest. It wasn't until I got Final Fantasy IV, uh, Final Fantasy II, and it was the first time like, oh, I'm 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 re it's like it's like playing a book, and I instantly mm -hmm. connected to that. And yeah. my memories of the genre and time, like I I have very clear memories of like the issue of game players magazine with uh final fantasy three reviewed in it, it had mm -hmm. sonic and knuckles on the front of it and it had like final fantasy three best rpg ever and like a little circle on <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. and like i, I can't yeah. remember who I, jeff i can't remember his last name but jeff someone reviewed the game and lundergren lundergren yes lundergren yeah. gave it a 98 yeah. and holy crap yeah, and I, wow. I, what you were just saying about like i remember the issue with chrono trigger in it mm -hmm. i i remember the strategy guide for uh, Final Fantasy III. I don't know if you remember that, but I was reading that during reading time at school. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was actually a really funny one. That's an excellent use of reading time at school. <laughs> right? I was just talking about a strategy guide for Final Fantasy III. It's funny you bring that up. I was just talking about one of those. But like me and my friends, we had this unofficial one. It had a weird sword on the cover, but it was like gigantic, you know, like it wasn't mm -hmm. like a, a regular trade style, like Oh, man, strategy guide like you get now it was like a gigantic it looked like an encyclopedia and it would like it, the, the amount of hours we poured over that was incredible oh yeah and it also th these kind of experiences lead 
I mean, a lot of, pardon me saying this, like some people talk about their sexual awakenings. Well, for a lot of people, RPGs were their creative awakenings. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't just in the sense that they really connected to it. It's that they, especially our generation, uh, who just had the internet for the very, very first time Mm -hmm. and could go online and find things like, I remember, I I have no idea if I sincerely would be very surprised if it still existed, but there was like a massive Final Fantasy fan fiction that was like multiple people were writing and they were writing like a sequel to Final Fantasy, um, Final Fantasy 3. And I remember reading the crap out of that uh, online and it's just, it opened up so many different worlds. Yeah, like the, the message boards and... Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially Chrono Trigger. Like I remember the first time I played Chrono Trigger, I got sick the day I got Chrono Trigger and I was so lucky. <laughs> like I, I didn't even have to fake it. Like my, I think my parents thought you're faking it. And they looked at me and like, oh, you're not faking it. You have a fever. Yeah. But I was thrilled because I got to spend the entire, like a full week playing Chrono Trigger at home. Yeah. It's it's funny you bring that up because like I wrote this um in preparing for to write fight magic items i wrote a big long history of of chrono trigger called timeless um and it digs into like you know the game the people who made it the people who played it what really makes it special um and i love it but it opens with uh a scene of me throwing up at school um which is pretty <laughs> funny because you know i again i was obsessed with chrono trigger and we had to do a creative writing project um and i decided to and it had to involve a wrinkle in time the novel and so i decided to do like this crossover because chrono trigger was time travel wrinkle in time was sort of like multiple worlds right um and so it was the chrono or yeah the chrono crew teleported to the wrinkle in time world or vice versa oh my gosh (laughs) and it was pretty cool i was like i was like 11 i was writing this it was it was pretty sweet it's pretty vivid in my memory uh i stayed up all night doing it so i was 11 or 12 and like for some reason my parents let me drink coffee to stay up all night doing this. I don't like, I don't, I haven't asked them what they were thinking. I don't know what they were thinking. I think that's the reason there are not as many 11 year old novelists as usual. Yes, they don't have access yes, to coffee. Exactly. Uh, that's the key. But a in any case, I finished it. Chrono Trigger Cross, A Wrinkle in Time fanfic, handed it in, promptly went to the bathroom and like puked my guts up and mom had to come pick me up. But I did it and uh, I was pretty proud of it. So uh, there's just something there, I guess, about. Uh, about Chrono Trigger. Oh, I hope you don't mind me sharing a little bit too, but I, I totally would have been the annoying classmate who didn't bust you to the teacher, but probably would have noticed uh, that you were JRPG inspired because that happened to me twice throughout school. Uh, one of my classmates basically kind of rewrote the plot of Final Fantasy Mystic Quests. <laughs> and then later on, like we were supposed to write a disaster story. Did they rewrite Final Fantasy Mystic Quest again because it was a disaster? <laughs> <laughs> no, that time it was Parasite Eve. Oh, okay. Okay. Which, which of course, is based on a novel uh, mm-hmm. itself, which is funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. My first novel like that I wrote, like fiction novel that I like really committed time to and wrote about half of was like, it was Lunar, Silver Star Story, complete like sequel with the file numbers, like <laughs> or the serial number <laughs> filed off. Uh, it was pretty transparent, um, but it taught me a lot, right? Um, yeah, fanfic. I like I, fan fiction is great, and I think it's like such a creative realm. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate to like I don't know what it was, but like Japanese RPGs, I never ran into that thing where like they were like you know disrespected by teachers as not being like legitimate sources of story or inspiration. It was never like nerdy at my school to like Japanese RPGs. Like all the cool older kids like them, and so I think that also kind of fed into it. Like it was like this really kind of intense positive 
like social uh watering hole oh, that's for great. people at my school yeah it was it was cool is this the part where i i have to mention that rpg fan used to be LunarNet? is that right back in the day uh-huh yep that was our start get out that's how that's really funny like <laughs> i i know LunarNet. how did how did that change how did that you guys it just it just started covering more games and i never made that connection before yeah i think over time we just kind of changed personnel and started covering yeah. more and evolved uh, that's fantastic i mean the <laughs> the old working designs message boards were like one of my very first like kind of social interactions online with like the the gaming community um and it's funny i still you know like i still see people you know games writers and, and people in the press who like you know used to post back then way back you know 2002 or whatever 1999 well let's actually talk a little bit about uh jrpg history because it yeah. just we're not going to dive like all the way to the end because you do cover from the very beginning up until modern day jrpgs but um you start off uh the book before video game rpgs actually you start off talking about tabletop games like dungeons and dragons which uh the original dungeons and dragons is it was not the refined experience that people would get today but yeah. it was a, a foundation for the genre and uh, but more importantly for this book, it D and D provided the template that many uh, many developers uh, took and uh, and built it into computer RPGs yeah. with varying levels of success. So yeah. like the earliest days were like Ultima and Wizardry, which I guess would have been like the Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest of their day. That yeah. they had yeah. like a, a Pepsi and Coca Cola type rivalry going on. And one other thing I wanted to say based on your idea about kind of a personal story and all the writers and creators who have in turn been inspired by JRPGs. It's a super interesting cycle because as we're going to talk about so many JRPGs were in turn inspired by these like early PC games. Yeah. And I mean, all of this was happening in the United States. Uh, now the question I have for you is what, what brought RPGs to Japan specifically what brought them to Japanese consoles? Yeah. So Games like like you bring up Ultima and Wizardry, and I think they're like sort of the er examples of successful transitions of like that D and D idea, right? Of yeah, the first CRPGs, the CRPGs, right? Um, and they were really good, and they were really popular in the West, but they also took off um, in Japan. So there were a lot of fans of Wizardry and, and Ultima, and they're kind of interesting because, like you say, they're like sort of the Final Fantasy and uh, Dragon Quest of CRPGs, but they're very different. Right, like they, like you know, wizardry is a first-person dungeon crawler. Ultima is something very different. It's more wide-ranging. Whereas Final Fantasy and Dragon Quest um, are very similar. So they, they you share know, they a draw lot of DNA. these games. Yeah, they yeah. they share a lot. But basically, like both of the creators of those games, Yuji Horii and, and Hironobu Sakaguchi, neither of them grew up expecting to make video games. Right. So Sakaguchi wanted to be a musician. Horii wanted to be a, a manga artist, and so they pursued that um a little bit but they got to a point where for both of them you know uh they wanted to you know like build those careers or you know like support them in some way and that led them both to getting computers that ostensibly they were going to do work on hori was going to do <laughs> you know writing work because he was sort of becoming a, a writer while he was at university uh i, I can't remember exactly what sakaguchi was going to use his for but like they obviously just used them to play video games and like most artists do when they like get a, most a like all machines do yes quote exactly. unquote work machine exactly uh so you know they started playing these games wizardry and ultima in particular 
uh, really inspired them. And there were other Japanese developers who were trying to bring that idea of bringing these Western CRPGs to Japan, um, but on computers, right? They were, they were making PC games, um, trying to emulate the Dungeons and Dragons experience, uh, you know, but again, on PC. And with the NES coming out, Yuji Hori and then Sakaguchi after, a bit after him said, no, let's do this for living rooms. How do I bring this Dungeons and Dragons experience to living rooms? Um, and I think both of them were probably in in part inspired sort of by the creative limitation of like game consoles and the sacrifices that kind of went into that because somebody Especially like at Yuji, the time. Yuji Hori, yeah, yeah, at the time, absolutely at the time, Yuji Hori previously, he had created the sort of like a point and click adventure detective game called the Portopia Serial Murder Mystery or something like that. I can't remember the exact name off the top of my head, but he created it for PCs and it was, it was a pretty big hit. And then he wanted to bring it to the NES, but like he didn't have a mouse, right? There was no mm. ability to do mm -hmm. like a text parser. So in the P the original PC version, you would type in with a keyboard what you wanted to do, you know, pick up fork, take, you know, take pot. Uh, but you couldn't do that on the NES. So he rebuilt um, the text parser into like this uh, dialogue tree, basically, as we know it now. And I think that creative limitation, uh, the idea of like, let's take these very con this very complex genre that's like you know growing in the the computer world and, and bring it into the simpler more confined like uh, living room space and they both took that on um and dragon quest came out first final fantasy came out second and in many ways they were very similar um you know dragon quest had one main character uh final fantasy had four there was a bit you know like there was some give and take final fantasy had a darker tone dragon quest was even at that time quite light and airy and and heroic yeah dragon quest was dragon quest was pretty much inspired by european style yeah. fantasy whereas final yes. fantasy had some sci-fi elements things yeah, like right that right from the bat it drew in that sci-fi and even like mm -hmm. they went out and they both got these sort of like high-end artists right like i was the, just the about NES, to say that yep. yeah the nes could obviously not produce like images even close to the concept art but they you know they brought in akira toriyama who uh hori kind of worked with at shonen jump um yeah, and he's known for Dragon Ball. They brought him in to do like all the box art and the character art and the concept art for Dragon Quest. And he has his very, you know, like iconic, uh, you know, bright, cartoony style. And then Final Fantasy brought in a, um, a, a you know, an artist uh, with a very different um, style. Uh, they brought in Amano, who has this very like ethereal, like otherworldly, like watercolory style that's just as identifiable just as unique as what toriyama was doing at the time but very very different and you can see off the bat that you know they had the same root inspirations but even at that like very first game even if like the main template was the same they had different ideas of where they needed to go and where the genre could go and i think we've seen that bear out because now those series uh are very very different they're very um, different final fantasy nowadays. 15 and, and dragon quest 11 are they're both rpgs but they're very very different gameplay experiences and i think you can take that right back to those early days of those those two creators like neither of which plan to become video game creators but both you know ended up defining a genre through their different interpretations of like what it meant to play dungeons and dragons on your living room television and this was all on the nintendo entertainment system mm -hmm. but yeah. uh there were other consoles in japan and of course you know the one that i think most people would think of for the 8-bit uh 
8-bit and 16-bit eras would be uh, Sega. Yeah. And uh, they, Nintendo clearly had the edge when it came to uh, JRPGs, especially in this time. But Sega also brought forward a, a, a classic of the genre of Fantasy Star, which went in a very different direction than both. Like, I guess, I guess Final Fantasy would have split the difference between fantasy and sci-fi and fantasy star went the rest of the distance so it was science fiction with fantasy elements yeah and i think it's really interesting to see like you know what uh reiko kodama and uh yuji naka and that team at sega were able to accomplish because you know their their mission was basically like oh okay square's making these games uh these rpgs square and enix uh we can do that we can do that in-house we don't need to hire a developer like we'll do that at sega and so they came up with this idea and i think what's really unique about fantasy star is um the way it was driven by a team with many women from the very get-go and so that gave it like you know something that i think final fantasy and uh and dragon quest um didn't have in terms of like not necessarily making it better but giving it that leg up because it had a different identity and it from the very beginning had different goals it had a female protagonist from the get-go and that was something that was really um really helped set it apart from the other two it brought in Mm -hmm. the like the first person dungeon crawling style dungeons from wizardry which neither the the other two um games had and then the science fiction setting was was super compelling and gave it variety and gave it this story that, rec- you know, like was recognizable to the other side of sort of that science fiction and fantasy crowd, right? It, you know, there are many people who only like science fiction or only like fantasy, but there's so, so many people who like them both. Mm-hmm. And so for Sega to recognize that, that they could take that template, that foundation that Sakaguchi and Hori created and give it to this like really vibrant young team of creators, um, I think was a really bold move. And I think it paid off. And I think the stuff that Fantasy Star added um, to the ecosystem and showed just how far you can push JRPGs, because the other two were, you know, Final Fantasy had um, science fiction elements, but that was only clear if you actually played the game from the outside. It looked like a very traditional fantasy RPG. Um, Fantasy Star was not that. And I think it's still a niche that like isn't explored enough in current JRPGs. You know, you have stuff like Xenoblade Chronicles. It's it's fairly sci-fi. Um, and if you're looking at retro style games, Cosmic Star Heroine obviously yes, pulled a lot yeah. of inspiration from it. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a good example. And then another, you know, another team at the same time. Um, it was on the NES, not Sega, but um, the work that Shigesato. Itoi was doing on Earthbound was interesting because that was taking, again, taking the idea and twisting the setting. And how does an RPG change if, you know, it's in a fantasy world or it's in a science fiction world or it's in everyday world? Like, how does that change? All the mechanics were very similar, but the experiences were very different because the creators, Sakaguchi and Hori and Kodama and uh, Yuji Naka and Itoi, all had different desires and different stories they wanted to tell. And I think that that from the very get go set up a genre that was exploratory and wanted to push kind of narrative and world building boundaries and create something that was like, you know, always unique and always trying to pull in lots of different ideas. Yeah. It really helped in this time period too, that Japan had JRPG fever. Like Mm -hmm. it was an astoundingly popular uh, genre of video game. And there are always the, the stories about like how Dragon Quest couldn't be sold on a school day because people, kids would skip school or people would skip work uh, to get their hands on it. Um, so it was incredibly popular, but interestingly, 
this popularity didn't automatically transfer over to the West. So let's let's talk a little bit about what what brought JRPGs to the West and how were these games initially uh, received by a Western audience? Yeah, so I mean, the original Final Fantasy and um, Dragon Quest both came out in the West. Uh, Dragon Quest was called Dragon Warrior at the time uh, because of like, uh, a, a rights issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, they did okay. Dragon Quest, Dragon Warrior was, you know, the, it, it took a lot of effort. Um, they were giving it away for free. Like they couldn't sell it at first. So they're giving it away for free with Nintendo power subscriptions. Right. And so you subscribed to the magazine, you got dragon warrior. And so like, you know, that sort of brute forced the game into a ton of living rooms. Right. Oh yeah. It's it's, it's almost Um, a similar strategy as to put attaching like Sonic the Hedgehog to the Genesis or like putting super Mario brothers releasing, but like, it's, it's such a great value. Like how could you not possibly take it? Yeah, exactly. And that version that came to the West had had some like gameplay improvements and stuff like that, graphical improvements. So it was like slightly better than Jap- Japanese version. Final Fantasy was the same. It did pretty good. Um, didn't light the world on fire though. And I think at that time, American gamers, Western gamers in Canada and, and elsewhere in the West weren't quite looking for that style of game. And I don't know if that was just like we were all a bit younger at that time, I, I don't know about like the demographics of who was into video games at the time. But like mm. I said, like the first time I saw Japanese RPGs on the Game Boy, I thought it was like slow and plodding and weird. Like I really needed that sort of like more frantic action of like a side scroller, like uh, Fall of the Foot Clan. Um, mm. But, you know, they, they kept trying and we did get, you know, some more Japanese RPGs, but we also started to miss some like uh, Itoi's mother didn't come out in the West, right? We didn't get Final Fantasy two or three. And so after Final Fantasy one came out in the West, uh, Square skipped than the, the other NES ones, they were coming out like quite fast as well. So there was also a weird like timeline thing where by the time Final Fantasy was getting uh, to the West, you know, like Japan was already a, a game or two ahead. Oh yeah, they just had an incredible backlog of games that they could localize. So they yes. really had to cherry pick what they would bring over. Exactly. Um, and like Square wasn't, you know, like Final Fantasy was a, was a hit for them in the in the um, in Japan. And like, you know, whether it saved the company or not, like whether that's true, I, I don't, I don't know for sure, but they, you know, they weren't the Square Enix of today, right? They oh, still God, had no. to make kind of savvy business decisions about these sorts of things. And they had to find a publisher who's willing to, you know, publish them in the, uh, the West. And so, you know, as the NES era sort of started rounding out and, and finishing up, there was the, um, the Super Nintendo was coming out. And I think that's what most Western players would sort of identify as like the first golden age of the genre. Mm. I think most, or like many at least would look back at that and be like, yeah, okay. The NES ones were like cool in, in concept and theory, but the super Nintendo took that idea, took the template that was created for the NES and like really polished it up. Right. And by the end of the super Nintendo, you had games like, you know, Chrono Trigger, uh, you had fantasy star four on the Genesis, which came out in like, like quite late, like 1995 or something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they were just like really, really good versions of what, Sakaguchi and Hori and Kodama initially dreamed up at the beginning of the NES's life cycle. You know, they were so recognizably the same type of game. Absolutely. And the amazing thing about it is that these games had started building an audience. Obviously, yeah. I mean, these like Final Fantasy, Chrono Trigger were getting features on the yeah. front covers of gaming magazines. Yeah. So people knew about them, yeah. even if they were not close yeah. to as popular as other games. But what I find very interesting is in terms of, let's say, 
in terms of uh, games that really broke into the public consciousness and expanded mm-hmm. the uh, popularity of JRPGs, despite the fact that the Golden Age was on the Super Nintendo, yeah. it wasn't the Super Nintendo and it wasn't the Genesis that I think had the biggest impact on how the public perceived RPGs. It was the Game Boy. Yes. Yeah. And the reason why is, yeah. I mean, got to catch them all. Pokemon. Yeah, Absolutely. And Pokemon came to the West after uh, probably the other big inflection point, or not probably, but the other big inflection point, which is Final Fantasy VII, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you had Final Fantasy VII in, in 1997, and then you had Pokemon in 1999. And those, like, those two are the two titles that you can look at um, as like the catalysts for growth of JRPGs in the West. And it's mm. it's funny because like going all the way back to the be- very beginning of the Super Nintendo, like Square s- knew there was potential. They understood that like fundamentally. I think Hori and Enix were a little more like bearish on the Western markets. Um, and they were very focused on Japan, but Square knew that there was this potential. They just went about seizing it in the wrong way. And so like Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy II came out. And again, like it kind of fell into that niche. It was, you know, it was pretty popular. It sold pretty well. But it was also kind of clear throughout the NES, Super NES's lifespan that there were like, there were about 400 to 600,000 JRPG fans. Like that's where you were going to yeah. cap out <laughs> at sales. They're like, it's consistent across almost all titles, right? And so like yeah. a, t- a JRPG could sort of like be like, okay, we'll make this, we'll release in the West, we'll sell 400 to 600,000 units. Uh, because JRPG fans were starved for games and they would buy everything. And there was half a million of them. True, but there was also a tremendous cost in terms of not yes. just time that needs to go into them, but yeah. also designers. Like these are not easy games. These are not exactly. a simple side-scroller. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're exponentially larger than other games. So what Square did in the early 90s was they started trying to create games specifically for Western audiences. So they made Final Fantasy IV, Final Fantasy II easier for the West. They created mm. Final Fantasy Mystic Quest like specifically <laughs> for the West. And it's like, you know, you guys, you guys laugh because yeah. it's like, it's, it's a relic. It's interesting to play, but like it was so fundamentally not what sprung Japanese yeah. RPGs in the West. Yeah, it, Mystic Quest is a branch of the RPG tree that just yeah. stopped dead. It never continued. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was clear like that the the j- these Japanese creators thought that the reason Japanese RPGs weren't taking off was because like Westerners were were too dumb or were intimidated by complex systems or stories. Well, when, there was like, clearly reality, a lot of cultural bias there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think it was just a misread of the Western like society and culture and needs and wants right i think maybe the west also needed to mature a little bit like literally like age up a little bit Mm -hmm. um because like you know by the time in 1997 final fantasy 7 hits you know it it sold something like 10 million units (laughs) instead of like half a million units right it blew up and i think part of that is because the kids like like us who were playing simpler jrpgs when we were younger we needed to like Final Fantasy VII would have gone way over my head if I was nine years old, right? But by Mm -hmm. the time I was like 14 or 15, it was exactly what I needed. And so I think it was also like there was timing in there, right? They they had to wait for that moment to pounce. Once the kids who, who associated JRPGs and had played them for years as kids grew up into like teenagers who sort of like started to get into anime, right? Like this is the same time when like stuff like Akira and Ninja Scroll and Dragon Ball Z, like all of those were on my radar as well. And I think mm-hmm. for a lot of people, and so like, you know, they jump on that with Final Fantasy VII and, and like 
I don't know how or why they they knew they should commit like thirty million dollars or forty million dollars to to marketing this game, like just an obscene amount of money. Um, I think that's how much it was. It was a lot, but they did. And it worked and it, and it ended up selling 10 million units, right? And then the next year, Xenogears comes out. And like Xenogears is a game that like, you know, it's it's kind of old and, and still kind of weird and clodgy and it's super long and it's about, you know, religious allegory. Like it's weird, right? And then there's the final disc. Yeah, well, I, I'll defend the final disc like- Oh, I know. <laughs> to the end, but, um, but yeah, like it's weird, right? But it still sold a million units, right? And mm-hmm. so like all of a sudden there was this like, market for jrpgs that ex- had expanded um quite a bit um you know there were final fantasy fans who would buy million like multiple millions of units of of those games and then like again like even like square sort of like smaller or like lower profile games like saga frontier or um xenogears could all of a sudden sell a million units and so that kind of started that ball rolling but then pokemon comes along and that leapt outside of that sort of like teenage early 20s crowd that i think was really driving jrpgs with final fantasy 7's um success and all of a sudden this was something that you know kids could get into and it was something that parents wanted to get for their kids like a game boy i think felt safe you could give the kid your kid a game boy and you know they they spent all this time as an rpg they, they were reading it was like you know something they were really into and uh and as a kid you know i was a teenager by the time or pokemon red and blue came out but like having this like portable adventure in my hands was like you know you get lost in that little screen and i you know like driving around in the back of my parents van as we were going wherever going shopping like lost in this like all of a sudden you know like being able to take these adventures on the go and and reaching an audience that like love jrpgs but also like kids who are into the anime and, and into that whole thing was like just a brilliant move by nintendo to jump on that marketing uh opportunity and oh, my friend um absolutely. dan dockery wrote uh has written a book comes out the same day as as mine so october 4th from the same publisher and it's called monster kids and it looks at pokemon and that success and then everything it sort of like spawned and and the you know the the coming of digimon and, and Yu-Gi-Oh, and looking mm-hmm. at that phenomenon of how it brought japanese culture over to the west alongside like other more you know air quotes mature japanese mm-hmm. rpgs like final fantasy I also think that this might not be giving parents and adults of that generation enough credit, but I don't care. This has been my personal theory, (laughs) which is um, I think a lot of the resistance to uh, the NES, the Super Nintendo, the Genesis back in those days is because kids were in front of a TV. And there was a lot of demonization in those days about kids are spending too much time in front of the TV. They should be going outside. They should be playing. They should be doing it like the idea of sitting in front of a TV and watching things was very demonized and right it's passive it's not active enough yeah exactly and i think that also extended over to video games because while they were still doing something they were they were doing something active they were still sitting in front of the idiot box yeah whereas the game boy didn't quite have that stigma attached to it because i don't think that a lot of adults at the time saw the screen of the game boy as a television set yeah i think it almost got around that because i a lot of parents at the time i mean my game boy was constantly being taken by my parents uh to play tetris and other games like this can i like let you guys in on like this crazy theory i have about video games and exactly what you're talking about so like my parents were both um 
you know, tech friendly. Like my dad, I, like I've had computers my whole life. There's pictures of me and my brothers as babies playing on like a Commodore 64. It's always been part of my life. My dad's an mm-hmm. early adopter, still is. And my mom always liked games too. And I'm pretty sure I got a Game Boy because my mom wanted to play Tetris and there was a Star Trek <laughs> game, right? Um, I mean, like I'm older now than my mom was when I would have got my Game Boy, right? And I'm I love video games. I write about them. I play them all the time, you know? So like, our, you know, as our parents were in their late twenties and thirties, like they they still have that mentality of, of wanting to play. I have this theory that when you're in your thirties, you also can't comfortably sit in f- like three feet in front of the TV for extended periods of time, cross-legged on the floor. Mm. And like, I I've always had this kind of like suspicion that part of the reason that like that generation of parents couldn't get into video games a uh, console games and why they were considered kids toys is because like you had the console you had a controller with a three-foot cord and so uh, the you only couldn't way sit on the couch it, yeah you couldn't sit on the couch you had to sit on the floor in front of the tv right um and parents can't do that i like i wouldn't really enjoy sitting on the floor three feet from my tv uh nope. though i do it sometimes because i have super nintendo with little cords uh and I, I like i feel like the game boy broke that down in exactly the way that you're describing is that all of a sudden it was something they could just hold in their hands you know like i can picture my mom curled up in our big armchair under the lamp playing tetris mm, right she absolutely. couldn't do that with the other um the other game consoles and i i think that that kind of freeing of video games from the the tv you know like because then you could watch you know the the, the hockey game and it didn't mean kicking somebody off playing video games, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think all of those things kind of came together to kind of help video games kind of become, like you say, like they're not, there's just, there was something different about playing on a dedicated device like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that that absolutely helped Pokemon take off. I think you see the same mentality take off when uh, the iPhone mm-hmm. actually started to break through again. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. was it eliminated that space. All of a sudden, it was in the palm of your hand. Yeah. Uh, where and that was the explosion of casual gaming back yes. about ten years ago. And now, that, like that demographic, like my parents who are in their sixties now, like that demographic with like smartphones and and stuff, like is a huge demographic of, of smartphone user. Like they adopted those. Like I would have never expected an adoption rate in like you know, older demographics in the way that it has, that everybody has a Mm. smartphone now and everybody uses it and everybody's on Instagram. Like, you know, like that is really interesting that you kind of make that personal connection and, and it changes the way people think about these things. Absolutely. I mean, that was, I think that was one of the major reasons why the internet broke through. I mean, the internet was very popular, obviously, but it's what, it's what Steve Jobs said, which was it's the internet in the palm of your hand. Yes. All of a sudden, any barriers to entry that could have ever existed were gone. Yes. And it was right there. And it was the same thing with the Game Boy. Yeah. You just picked it up and turned it on. Your game was right there, right? Bam. Yeah. And the games were also designed to be played in these small chunks and in this Mm -hmm. way, right? Like Tetris was so easy to pick up. You play two rounds and you put it down and it doesn't matter that it doesn't save your game, right? It doesn't matter. It's not Mario, Super Mario Brothers, where if you stop playing after two levels, you've lost all that progress, right? Um, Mm -hmm. You could pick up Tetris, you could play two rounds, it would save your score and you're done. Um, And I think that was also a really appealing entry point for people. And then that extends on and then you get into Pokemon, which does have a really robust save system. And so you can kind of show like, uh, you know, like kids coming over and being like, hey, mom, look, I caught this Pikachu and now it's level 22, you know, and I beat this gym. And you can see your kid sort of like making that progress 
through um through a game in a way that's like pretty easy to understand um mm. more so i think than you know like trying to explain final fantasy 7's plot yeah <laughs> to your mom and dad right like trying to explain final fantasy 7 plots to yourself is yeah. difficult enough <laughs> yeah and okay i'm gonna tie everything all together now you ready excellent yes and now we have pokemon go Mm-hmm. Oh, which yes. introduced a bunch of new people, yeah. but all these different generations can kind of play and you can get Diglett in a fancy hat. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And like, like Pokemon Go is like, it, it brings pe- like families together in that way, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because you're experiencing and and again, it's like that shared experience of like, you're both holding the phone, you're both looking at the map, you're strategizing where to go, you're, you're in the, the battles and stuff together. You raid, um, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And and then like the community aspects of it with like you know raids and gyms and all that kind of stuff is is interesting as well like taking that that community aspect that Pokemon's always had and of course like the tradeability um, the trading aspect the combat aspect like you know the bragging aspect the brilliant idea to have two versions with like different Pokemon um, oh, so that great. on the schoolyard like you know you're having to seek out somebody who had the different color cart like there were a lot of like very very clever uh, marketing decisions that took this like you know sort of it game that looked on the surface like a fairly casual jrpg experience and created something that was like much more complex in terms of like the social nuance and and the way people interacted Mm -hmm. with their game and thought about their game thought about the items and the the creatures the pokemon that they had in the game well let's continue on with this because i mean there's a lot we could talk about here Mm -hmm. in terms of uh your history uh and the history of uh rp jrpgs but since we're on the topic of handhelds uh Part five of your book, there's there's multiple parts of your book that are divided yeah. into like different eras. Uh, one of them is the dark years. Yeah. Um, and it, there was a, I mean, there were RPGs being released on these consoles, but yeah. a part of the problem was uh, the barrier to entry for developers suddenly got a whole lot higher when you released HD consoles and all of a sudden mm, details were very important. You needed to be able to make your game look good in HD. Um, and that did discourage a number of developers. Uh, thankfully, JRPGs found another home, which is exactly what we were talking about, which is, I would argue, during this period, handheld RPGs on the Game Boy Advance, the DS, mm-hmm. things like that, yeah. exploded in popularity. I think there's like there's two things going on here. Three, maybe. So the first one is what you described, like uh, j- uh, developers and especially Japanese developers who like they really like to like create the new engines for every game. They like to do everything in house. They were wary of at that point of, you know, th- uh, third party stuff like and and bringing in different engines. And, that's and they still are. They still are, sure. Uh, but they're doing it more. And that's partly you can pinpoint that partly on Hironobu Sakaguchi again and his company Mistwalker, who was mm-hmm. one of the first like Japanese RPG developers to go and partner with Unreal Engine and use it in some of his games. Uh, but for the most part, they were having a you know a lot of trouble transitioning to these HD consoles. Um and so like the living room experience of sitting down in front of your TV and playing a JRPG was was pretty few and far between. And even the ones that existed, like Xenoblade Chronicles took a lot of like fan effort to get over to the west um rainfall yeah yeah operation rainfall um which, which I you actually focus on quite a bit in this book yeah i could have honestly i could write a whole chat like a whole book on that experience it's it's incredible i enjoyed um, your takeaway at the end of it which was yeah. the same takeaway i had which was it may have changed history or it may have done absolutely nothing we'll but never know nobody will say right like there's nothing on record that actually says like oh yeah this is why xenoblade came over but like i'm playing through xenoblade chronicles 3 right now and i like i if you ask me like my personal opinion is that we would not be playing xenoblade chronicles 3 right now if it wasn't for 
a bunch of people on an IGN message board like 15, like 12 years ago, which is like mm -hmm. just wild to me. And I think it's a fascinating story, but that's what we had to go through to get Japanese RPGs during this period, which was like, you know, dark years for, for Japanese uh, games. But one of the chapters in that section is called a light in the darkness and it focuses on this transition to to handheld gaming which is pretty funny considering how friggin' dim the game boy advance yeah well, well yes i know <laughs> they improved they improved it pretty quick and the, the psp was was pretty cool but uh but yeah like a one barely of, visible think, light in the dark <laughs> yes yeah like if you look if you squint i mean the first one didn't even have a light at all um but what i think is like i think there's two things that were going on there and the, the first one was Again, I think if we look at the age of the people who were like playing the f JRPGs in the 90s, like when they first started to like really popularize and they were teenagers when Final Fantasy VII and stuff came out. By the time the HD era came and, and they started drifting away from consoles onto handhelds, people like me, I was in my 20s and I was working. So I was commuting a lot. I still lived on an island and I was traveling over by ferry like almost every day and spending an hour on the ferry every day. I was driving to work. I was like on the go a lot. So even if I had wanted to play games on my TV, I wouldn't have had that time or that space or that opportunity. And I think a lot of people were going through similar life changes where they weren't necessarily at home all the time. You know, we had growing social lives or we had more work or we we're at university and handheld gaming fits into that really nicely because oh, totally you know it can does. be on the go and it can happen when it's convenient um and i think that was happening for a lot of people right like the the people who are now in their 30s and 40s like late 30s maybe early 40s like they're the ones sort of making japanese rpgs now and they were the ones that were in university in their 20s with a game boy advance or a ds and so i think mm -hmm. that that was happening so there was a big audience like the audience for japanese rpgs was also moving towards handheld systems um but i also think like going back to what you said earlier the just the lower like overhead for creating an rpg for those systems was was much much lower it was cheaper mm -hmm. and there was less risk right and i think again and and to go back even further there were those like creative boundaries that i think inspire a lot of people like the hd consoles i think that's in some ways companies like square enix got too caught up in the possibilities and too caught up in the idea that they had to do something like totally overly like mind-blowing on these uh -huh. hd consoles and that created sort of a, a form of paralysis but if you go back to like the playstation before final fantasy 7 came out and even after final fantasy 7 came out a lot of the great rpgs on that system still look like and feel like and are in the mold of super nintendo and, and sega genesis rpgs right like wild arms and xenogears and breath of fire 3 and 4 like those all use the same shape um and you know the same ideas the same like design philosophy as 16-bit rpgs they fall mm. into that same realm but they didn't do that on on hd consoles they wanted to create something that was just like yeah felt modern felt like an hd game but the game boy and the the ds and the, the psp offered constrictions again restrictions like you know a an environment that was defined and had an upper limit and you oh, could design to facilitate that. creativity that's just exactly. a reality and i think that that's why we saw such an explosion of like really interesting games because they were easier to make 
the, the, the restrictions were clear and that created an environment that really drove creativity to define the games rather than technology defining the games. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we got a lot of ports of older games. We got a lot of reimaginings of older games. Like right now I'm looking at Lunar Legend for the, the GBA. It's the carts right in front of me. And that mm-hmm. was like, you know, they couldn't do Lunar Silver Star Story Complete on the Game Boy Advance. So they like reimagined it in this portable version of the, the game. And is it as good as the console version? Like not really, but it exists, right? And they would never mm-hmm. would have done that. They never could have done a similar thing on one of the HD consoles. And so I think like that confluence of the genre on handhelds just came together because it was a comfortable development environment. It, the games were cheap. And so risks came with less, you know, potential for loss. So Mm -hmm. if something didn't hit that, you know, didn't sink you in the same way that that missing out on the HD consoles might have. And then, you know, just like uh, kind of overthinking things a bit on Mm -hmm. the um, the HD consoles. Like I think the the best JRPGs of that era, like Lost Odyssey and Blue Dragon, Tales of Asperia, Tales of Symphonia, like those are all fairly straightforward JRPGs, right? Uh, Baton Kaitos, I get are those, yeah, uh, those are Baton Kaitos and Symphonia, I guess, are the generation before. But, but I, I um, still take your point, yes. But like the point is, yeah, like during that era, those HD, the best of the best HD JRPGs were sort of very traditional. The days where Square could lock a 20 person team in a room yeah. for a year and yeah. they pop out with an RPG, yeah. those were long gone on consoles. Yeah, absolutely. But they could exist on, on handhelds, right? Yeah. And, um, and I think that Square and Japanese developers knew how to make games like that. Right. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, now I think we're still seeing the effects of the HD era. I mean, we only just got out from the, uh, like the shadow of final fantasy 13s, like extended, um, you know, series that that started life on the PS2 and then eventually finished sort of like on the PS4. The hallway that lasted three generations. Yeah. yeah. And they just like, yeah, exactly. And I think they just galaxy brained themselves into to too big of ideas and got paralyzed by that. But now mm-hmm. look at like, look at where we're going now, right? We see Final Fantasy 16 and it's like, it's going off in this one direction. Like Yoshi P is talking about how they're going to do like an action oriented almost like a character action game style combat system because they want to pull in that younger audience, right? Um, mm-hmm. But then you also have like the Suikoden HD remaster, which looks amazing. And you have stuff like Sea of Stars, which I think we mentioned earlier, and Ayuden Chronicles, which are like much more traditional, like pixel art based JRPGs that like really appeal to mm-hmm. people in a different way. And so now like, I think we're sort of diversifying what we feel and understand jrpgs can be they can be big and inventive like what final fantasy wants to do to success sometimes and to kind of weird failure and other times or they can go along that sort of more traditional um Mm -hmm. path and still have value and still appeal to a wide audience where you end up with dragon quest 11 for example yeah Mm -hmm. exactly yeah and and i think uh it's worth saying that Ayudin's not not alone because uh arm fantasia and penny blood just got funded as well yes Mm-hmm. I, that's an, that's a fabulous example um, of how you can take these sort of like established ideas and th- like they are gorgeous games, right? Like they don't skimp on like visuals. It's not mm-hmm. like you have to make something that looks cheap or music or or music or anything, right? Like they look like really robust experiences, and I'm like I'm thrilled that they exist. And I don't think that that I don't even think a company like Square would have like had the 
guts to make something like that, you know, at the start of the PlayStation 3 <laughs> and Xbox right. 360 area, right? They could, they probably could have, and they probably could have made something that came out better than Final Fantasy 13. But what happened is we got to this place where gaming and the gaming like industry is changing so much that it's driving people to indie solutions and Kickstarters. And we're seeing stuff like Iuden Chronicle and, um, and other Kickstarters from indie developers showing that this audience is here and they're hungry for these like, you know, really recognizable sort of traditional JRPG experiences that aren't, it doesn't have to be Final Fantasy 16, right? Which is trying to like blow every, you know, like wall off the glass building um, to wow everybody. Like these are games that like really hone in on what we've always loved about the genre and there's that audience for it. So now we're also seeing Square you know, put out stuff like Octopath Traveler and mm -hmm. Octopath Traveler 2, the HD 2D games. We're seeing Konami return to Suikoden. Like, I never thought that was ever right. in a million years going to happen. Live Alive. Indie, like, Live Alive, yeah. I never thought that would happen. But, like, we have these this robust indie scene and the ability for fan communities to support these projects has shown, like, sort of the more corporate side of the industry that, like, oh, yeah, there are people here that want this type of experience. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to always be this weird, like, galaxy brain idea. And then occasionally you get something like Final Fantasy XIV, you know, Realm Reborn, yes. uh, which I, I really enjoyed the little chapter on that in yeah. your book. I had so much fun writing that chapter. It, like, again, if you're talking about something that could be a book on its own, like Final mm -hmm. Fantasy 14, it could be like a series of books. Uh, it's fascinating. And I think it's such a like wonderful example of how much the genre has grown and evolved. Um, and earlier you brought up the, the, uh, the fact that like, you know, there's this all this inspiration and the way that games inspire each other. And I think Final Fantasy XIV is a really good example of how the original games were Japanese-created games inspired by Western ideas, right? And then we come forward to Final Fantasy XIV, and it's this very Western um, game idea once again, like the MMORPG, mm -hmm. once again, sort of like taken by, you know, Japanese developers and and introduced it together and brought together in a way that's so compelling and has found immense success. And I love that kind of cyclical story of how the, mm -hmm. the two, the Western and, and Japanese kind of game design ideas and philosophies inspire one another over and over and, and kind of have that, you know, cyclical dance where they're, you know, they're ebbing and flowing and, and uh, inspiring one another over and over and over again. And that will just continue. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. And now you have, we keep talking about like Sea of Stars and another good example is a game called Quartet from something classic. And these are like indie RPGs. They, they don't want to call themselves Japanese RPGs because they're not, you know, Japanese, but they're like very clearly like Western games inspired by Japanese creators and mm -hmm. Japanese games. And I think that that's really cool as well. I agree. And this kind of inspiration that, uh, these games have brought these new creators. I mean, it, it will just continue and continue and continue because, well, we were talking a little bit about uh, constraints and technological constraints and things like that. And uh, there is another side of that, which is the technology has reached the point now where the ability to create very uh, complex and polished games are now in the hands of developers, uh, specifically indie developers. And are, they're creating experiences that, are easily the equal of anything that the massive companies, Square, 
uh, Enix, variety of others created back in the 90s. One of the like most interesting things and stories I've written over the past few years is a look at how like fan communities are not just creating new things, but in this specific case, going back to like some of um, the old kind of old classic JRPGs like Final Fantasy IX and bringing them back to life. Um, in a way that like far exceeds what the like billion dollar corporations are doing. And, and uh-huh. in Final Fantasy IX's specific case is a mod code called Moguri mod that uses AI to upscale backgrounds uh-huh. and, and it does all this amazing stuff. And you, you, you load it on top of the steam version and it feels like this modern revitalized version of Final Fantasy IX. It feels like what you remember Final Fantasy IX looking like. And this is like a, a group of, of, fans and like you know some of them are professionals in the game industry but you know they're working as fans and they're like they're showing that like it takes ingenuity and it takes uh robust tools like you're saying uh but it doesn't have to take a ton of money right to like Mm. to apply some of these ideas to to games and you have you know other smaller studios who are using kick you know kickstarter funded models to create games that in my opinion look just as exciting as anything like square or uh you know like similar companies are putting out right like if you mm-hmm. ask me right now like Ayuden Chronicle and Sea of Stars and um the the Wild Arms and and Shadow Hearts games i can never remember their names um Penny something Penny Blood yep yeah Penny Blood um they look incredible, right? And like, they're not sacrificing depth, but they've chosen art styles, they've chosen structures that fit into the kind of creative constraints that they've put upon themselves. Nowadays, you can do anything you want. You're not constrained by the technology in the way that they were 20 years ago. So now I think successful games are going to look for constraints not just in technology, but constraints in sort of vision and scope creep and come up with a an idea that's v- super polished super strong and doesn't try to do too much mm-hmm. and focuses on being really really good at what it at what it wants to be and i mm-hmm. think that we're gonna find that there's a ton of really interesting projects coming out over the next decade that aren't necessarily like blowing you away with scope you know they're blowing you away because they're like really polished really well thought out clever games from uh you know maybe smaller studios even well uh speaking about scope creep uh we're gonna start winding this down because i know i know that you have to uh take care of your kids uh but i I did want to ask you this scope creep is something that doesn't just affect you know game developers it also affects writers um and i think that what you have here is a very very tightly written book i think Mm -hmm. it flows i don't think there's anything in this book that feels superfluous at all However, as a review manager and a reviewer myself and, and a writer, I know how much can end up on the cutting room floor, you know, some good, some not so good. Uh, I was just curious in this book, what was, what did you have to cut from it that you kind of wish that you could have kept in it? Oh man. Like, oh, so the book is about 120,000 words long. Mm-hmm. Um, I pitched it quite a bit shorter than that. <laughs> so like my initial idea was to, to tell the story in about 70,000 words. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't do that. Uh, but I did have a very, very strong outline. And so that helped me from the very get go, find and shape a narrative and like a narrative kind of through line in the book um, that always like, you know, the book is it's a story of the history of Final Fantasy, Dragon Quest and the rise of Japanese RPGs in the West. And so I looked for games and topics and stories and people that tie back into one of those three core concepts. So it's either about like the history of Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest or how they've impacted things and inspired future games. Right. 
So mm-hmm. looking at how few you know games later in the book tie back to decisions that were made by Sakaguchi and Hori way back when, um, or you know stories about how ga- these kind of sort of strange Japanese RPGs became so popular in the West. And so with those three things in mind, you know, I created an outline that was that was I felt like pretty good. I think I felt like it it had a good beginning and middle and an end. It kind of, you know, starts with Yuji Hori and Sakaguchi. It ends right back at the beginning with an older Sakaguchi wondering if he's made his last game. I wrote the book Sorry, I said it was 120,000 words at 110. The first draft was 125,000 words. So I cut about 15%, so 15,000 words or so from the the draft that I had actually written. Some of that was full chapters. Like I just, you know, like I wrote some pretty great content and pretty great chapters that just didn't fit into that overall narrative arc. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about like fluff or superfluous, it would have felt like that. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to repurpose those in play other places in the book. Some of it came out wholesale. Some of it, you know, I, I've held on to the material so that I can tell those stories in a different fashion, in a different medium. Um, and so that was hard. Uh, some stuff I just didn't get to write at all because I, I knew from the get-go that it wasn't going to fit. Um, mm-hmm. I would have loved, I would have loved to write a story about the Sega Saturn. Like it's an, it's an oh, incredible God, it's Japanese so RPG system like it it has so many amazing interesting unique japanese rpgs and it has the best version of a bunch of japanese rpgs Mm -hmm. like grandia like lunar silver star story complete like it's such a great system just not in the west right it has almost nothing to offer japanese rpgs in the west uh it's a novelty and so i would love and i would have loved to spend 5,000 words digging into the the Sega Saturn. Uh, But it just didn't fit like the overall narrative arc that I was talking about. And so that's something that I want to pursue. Like, I still want to tell that story. I still will. I mean, everything from this, everything about Sega from like the last year of the Genesis up until the end of the Dreamcast is just fascinating. I mean, again, you're talking about a whole book, you know, like it's something that could fill a whole Mm -hmm. book, like that kind of rise and fall of of Sega and how much like of that was kind of hubris like that. That's just fascinating. Right. And the Saturn is like such a like self created like failure on Sega's part. I I would have loved to have had that in the book. Uh, It was in the original outline. I kept it as long as I could. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I would have loved to have gone into more games that, I feel like I feel really interesting, like niches in Japanese RPG history, but I couldn't find the way that they sort of impacted the series or the genre's success in the West in a way that that felt like it was, you know, it, serving it, your narrative. It, yeah, fill, filling that narrative, right? That it fit into the ga- the the book's core narrative of like Sakaguchi, Dragon Quest, uh, Hori, and and Final Fantasy. Or the other yeah. way around, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the rise of the genre in the West. So I would love to have, you know, written a whole like a bunch about the tales of series. I think they're really interesting. Uh, they're popular, but you know, it just didn't really fit into the book. Same as like the Trails in the Sky series, which I'm constantly fascinated with, uh, and the Legend of Heroes like overarching series. So I would have loved to have written about those books, but um, but it just wasn't in the you know the cards for this this book. Um, it, it had to, to end at some point, and uh, yes. I couldn't have I couldn't have handed it in at two hundred thousand words. Well, uh, you know, I mean, I mean, to be honest, there's a these are all interesting topics, and these are things that you might be able to explore in future books. Things yeah. are looking pretty good for uh, the video game book publishing industry. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a brand new imprint was just announced today. I believe uh, we're recording this on the 30th. Uh, Limited Run Games just announced press run for video games. It's led by uh, Jeremy Parrish, 
uh, and Jared Petty, uh, Jeremy Parrish, best known from, I would say, the NES works books and YouTube videos. Um, so it looks like this is a growth industry. And I think that I honestly think that you have a heck of an entry here. It's it's a very engaging book. I read I read it cover to cover, enjoyed it, related to it hard, especially uh, the sections where you expanded on your personal uh, your personal uh, experiences with the genre. Um, so I'm I'm very thankful that we got a copy of this and that we got to uh, we got to talk to you about this today. Thanks, I really appreciate that. Um, I'm really excited for Print Run. Like you bring up Jeremy, he's somebody. I, I think I mentioned the Working Designs message boards um, back in like 1999, and I remember him like way, for way back then posting on those boards. And there's there's like there's few people in the games industry that I would trust with its you know to to take care of its history and its people and its stories as much as I would trust uh, Jeremy Parrish with that. And so to have an imprint that's focused on that story, bringing forward this history and not just like, not just a good readable way, but a a beautiful way because limited run has that attention to detail when it comes to art and just the whole experience of having a book. And um, it just makes me happy to see that there's going to be more books about video games and Mm -hmm. not just, not just video games, but like, you know, people, and and history and story and community around video games because i think there's so many fascinating stories uh that still remain to be told and i I hope to keep telling them you know like it's been so gratifying working on this book but not just that you know like you reach the point where you're working on a project and i wrote this book quite fast like the whole experience of writing the first draft was about three and a half months which was pretty quick well that um, is fast for a yeah, hundred thousand words yeah it, it was a lot uh and you but you lose like in the middle of that you lose track of you know the perspective on the book and so it's been so gratifying talking to people like the two of you and hearing you know the the, the experience you've had and that you know the goals that i had for the book have, have come forward and I, I really hope to get to share more of those uh, in the future. So I appreciate you having me on tonight and, and chatting about the book, reading it and, and, uh, and sharing that with uh, everybody. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Looking forward to drafting the review as well. And like you mentioned, I think we're at a really exciting time where we've been following RPGs long enough that people are starting to really kind of consider and write about the cultural impact mm-hmm. that they've had and start to view the industry from that perspective. And I think you have a great solid entry in that, and I can't wait to see uh, what more comes of it. Uh, well, we've been jabbing long enough here. Let's sell <laughs> some books. Uh, and why don't you tell us when the book is coming out and where people can buy it? Sure. The book comes out uh, October 4th, 2022 from Running Press, which is an imprint of Hachette, and it's going to be available in any bookstore. Um, I generally try to push people towards their indie bookstores. It's excellent to support, you know, independent booksellers in your town. Uh, if they don't have it on their shelves, they'll be able to order it in. And if we're lucky, you know, they'll order two or three copies alongside the one that you want. Um, if you can't, you know, you get online, you can go to, you know, anywhere you want online is going to have it. Uh, any of your big box bookstores will have it. And again, if it's not on shelves, they'll be able to get it in uh, very quick and easy. I've also been doing um, signed pre-orders from uh, an indie bookstore in Victoria, BC called Monroe's. But by the time this comes out, I will probably have uh, been down there and signed stock. So I don't know if they'll still be selling signed copies, but uh, that is a possibility. If there's demand there at Monroe's, I'm happy to to drive back into Victoria and, and sign some more stock. So <laughs> you can uh, Google them, Monroe's Books uh, in Victoria, BC. Awesome. So yeah, just 
wherever you buy your books or uh, look up uh, look them up online. And uh, I, I actually I also built a website for the book, uh, which has all this information, and that might be useful for readers to know. You mm-hmm. can find it at um, fightmagicitems.rocks, R O C K S, you know, Fight Magic Items Rocks. Um, and it has uh, information about the book, but it also has a big section with a bunch of links um, to various booksellers. And also, uh, maybe most helpful is a site that will help you find indie bookstores in your region. And so you can, you know, plunk in your um, your region or your address, and it'll show you all the indie bookstores in uh, in your area. And so that that's a pretty handy tool, regardless. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. I'd also like yep. to say that really quickly that there are definitely some websites that help you purchase books online, but still through more local venues. So that's another good option. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you don't mind, but we're also going to take an opportunity here to to talk about our stuff. So speaking of stores, we have one here at RPGFan.com. You can find it at www.RPGFan.com slash shop. Uh, We have t-shirts, mugs, uh, all kinds of things, and we're coming out with some new stuff. So please take a look at that. And uh, it's a fantastic way to support the site. Um, a great way to support this podcast is to check out our past episodes. We have many, many past episodes, including some uh, other episodes of Random Book Club. Uh, we are not the only podcast here at RPG Fan, though. We also have Retro Encounter with Mr. Mike Solosi, uh, that's focusing on some retro games. We have lots of other interesting episodes coming out, including including a series of episodes that Hillary and I are going to be on together uh, coming out next month. So yes. really excited about that. It's Adventure um, Game Month. It's Adventure Game Month. Yeah, so we're playing some adventure games. Uh, which I, I mean, I'm just super excited. So I, oh, crepes. I've really actually got to get on playing the next one because we're recording on Monday and I haven't started it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG fans music podcast. Uh, last week was focusing on, uh, in honor of the Kickstarter, we were focusing on the music of Wild Arms and Shadow Hearts. It was called Wild Hearts and Shadow Arms or something <laughs> it was like our, that. Hill? Yeah, it was our Wild Hearts episode. Yes. And uh, <laughs> what's coming up next week, Hill? So... Um, we've got a few exciting things. Uh, our next episode is going to be a composer spotlight. We're spotlighting Masafumi Takada. Uh, so it was an interesting selection of games there. And then we are doing a, an October kind of spooky episode for Cas- focusing on Castlevania. And then after that, we're going to do another series, uh, Pokemon. It is impossible to say out loud just how excited Slosi is about this Castlevania episode. So that's definitely <laughs> one that people want to check out. Um, If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Random Encounter, you can fire me off a message at podcast at RPGFan.com. I'd love to hear from you if you have any ideas for future episodes or themes or just some comments about the show. Would love to hear from you. If you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at jlogan at RPGFan.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Jono underscore Logan. I am not the only person on this podcast who have an online presence, however. Hillary, where can we find you online? Um... The best spot to reach me for RPG fan stuff is Discord. I'm EP Fire there. Cool. And Aiden, uh, where can we find you online? You might as well drop that URL again for your book again. Sure. Yeah. So you can find information about Fight Magic Items at its official website, fightmagicitems.rocks. And I'm most readily found, I like I've got a website, but you can usually just find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle there is a dribble of ink, A-D-R-I-B-B-L-E-O-F-I-N-K. And I am there way too frequently. So you'll uh, you'll probably find me there if it's within, you know, waking hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends. You can help us get the word out there. You can rate us on iTunes or your other podcast player of choice. 
Uh, Aiden, again, I want to really thank you for taking the time and coming and talking to us about your book. Uh, I think you have a real winner here. I really enjoyed it. And uh, just thank you for writing it. Well, thank you for reading it. Thank you for having me on. It's been such a pleasure to talk about these games and and this book and to share the stories uh, you know, that I discovered along the way with with you and w- with other readers. And I hope uh, I hope the RPG fan community enjoys it uh, as much as, as I enjoyed writing it and you guys enjoyed reading it. Yeah, as much as we, we all have with this episode too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, Hillary, of course, thank you again for joining me for another RPG or uh, random book club episode. We'll have to do this again in the future. Yeah, it's so much fun. And I'm really looking forward to doing some uh, doing some adventure gaming with you over the next month. I know. We're kind of a lot for podcasts. It's great. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Uh, a lot of games to play. And uh, mm-hmm. to everyone out there listening to this episode, whatever you're playing, have fun. <laughs>